Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO Podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Eric Jarvis. Eric is professor at Rockefeller University and investigator at HHMI. Thanks for joining us, Eric. You're welcome. So can you tell us about what your lab does? My lab studies the brain, basically, but we study more specifically brain regions that control our ability to imitate sounds, like what I'm doing now, producing a learned speech. And we do so in non-human animals that have that ability, like parrots and songbirds. These are rare few species in the world that can do this, that are shared with us, even though they're not closely related to us. So this is why parrots can imitate us where a dog can't. We also have a genome lab that uh, is generating lots of high-quality genome data, uh, not only for our neuroscience projects, but for the scientific community broadly, ranging anything from neuroscience to conservation. How do you think the genome effort can inform the neuroscience effort? Most traits are controlled by what's in the genetic code of your genome and the genes in your genome. And so um, if we find the specialized trait like spoken language in humans that we don't find in our closest relatives or like in parrots, we can compare the genome of humans and chimpanzees or parrots and falcons and ask the question, well, what differs there in that genetic code? And the more species you have with these traits, the higher the N number that helps you, you know, statistically find the, the specific genetic markers that will develop a brain pathway that allows you to de- develop a neural circuit for, let's say, speech or learning how to fly. And how, how similar are these circuits between humans and birds with vocalization? What's surprising is that some of the similarities outweigh the differences. So we find, uh, and I say we, it's me and other people in the scientific community that study this, not just my lab. But overall, we find that humans and parrots and songbirds have a specialized forebrain circuit in the parts of the brain you would call the cortex and the basal ganglia that you don't find in the other species that cannot imitate sounds or find at a very rudimentary degree. So the, the fact that they're there is similar, right? And then they have some connections that are similar, like the cortical regions in us humans and the equivalent in birds projects down to the neurons in the midbrain that control the voice. And this connection is direct from the cortex where you don't find those direct connections in species that can't imitate. What's remarkable is that they're separate, we're separated from birds by 300 million years of evolution. We have so many species in between that don't have these circuits. Further, what's remarkable is that the mammalian brain, including us humans, the cortex is a set of layered neurons, like six layers, one on top of another. Whereas in birds, the neurons are clustered in the cortex. But yet, from those layered structured or clustered structure, you get a similar type of neural network that controls speech. So is this a case of convergent evolution? Yes, convergent evolution. It happened more than once in evolution, and it happened a similar way. Do you have any idea how many times this has happened? Yeah, so far we think at least five times in mammals, so us humans, whales and dolphins that together are called cetaceans, bats, elephants, and then another marine mammal, which is uh, pinnipeds, those are seals and walruses and so forth. So it's five out of like 32 major orders of mammals. So you don't find it in, you know, horses, for example. And amongst uh, birds, we have parrots, hummingbirds, and songbirds. So far, no reptiles, no fish, no amphibians known to have this trait. And is the kind of neural solution to the vocalization problem, for example, in mammals, always the same? 
Yeah, it's similar. So the similarity is that in all the species we've looked at so far, which is basically the three bird groups in humans compared to their closest relatives, this what we, I would call the spoken language pathway or the vocal learning pathway, I think they're nearly equivalent, that it is embedded inside of a motor pathway that controls learning how to move, like learning how to move the hands, learning how to move other parts of the body. And this motor learning pathway we can find in all vertebrate species that move, right? So what we think happened is that the brain pathway for spoken language evolved out of the brain pathways controlling learning how to move and evolved by a brain pathway duplication. And so that's why we think it's similar in birds and humans, because the ancestral brain regions out of which the speech pathways evolved were already there. How generalizable do you think the circuitry patterns are? Like, do you think that it's just everything is built on this motor substrate and there are, you know, many, many paths to get to vocal learning? And this is just the most common based on what was pre-existing. I actually think there are limited paths in which you can get to vocal learning. It's like the evolution of wings, especially amongst vertebrates. Each time they evolved in bats, birds, and ancient flying dinosaurs, the petrosaurs, they evolved on the upper arms and not one on the back, you know, or one on the tail, around the tail and one by the feet and so forth. And the reason why is that there's a environmental constraint. And that environmental constraint is the center of gravity. So if you're going to fly in the sky, you need your wings to be near the center of gravity to fly more energetically. I think the same thing is happening to the brain. There's limited ways you can evolve a circuit that's going to control learned sound production, especially through our vocal organs like the larynx. And I like to think of the surrounding motor pathway as the arms of the wings, right? And the vocal learning circuit as the wing structures themselves. But does that theme happen uh, multiple times? I think my prediction is yes. No one really knows. But my prediction is that the motor learning circuits for different traits can emerge out of a sort of a canonical motor learning circuit and then become specialized. The specializations for speech in us humans and song and birds are of two forms. One is this is an advanced sensory motor integrative behavior. We need to take sound coming through our ears and integrate it with movement of the jaw muscles and the laryngeal muscles and other things that control sound production. That kind of sensory motor integration of auditory input, uh, motor output, I think requires its own special formulas or algorithms in computer science terms to work with each other. In fact, after vocal learning evolved, it looks like only vocal learning species are the ones that can learn how to dance. All right. So synchronize your body movements to rhythmic beats of sounds. And the reason why I think that is the case is because you need rapid auditory input, the sounds that you hear with motor output. So you need something special to have the auditory information talked in the motor information. And once that happened, it contaminated the surrounding motor circuits that control not just the larynx, but the hands, the feet. And so to have auditory input allow us to synchronize our body to rhythmic sounds was a side effect of spoken language. The second specialization I think that happened is the larynx is the fastest firing muscles in the body to produce sound. You need to move those muscles really, really quick to vibrate the air and produce sound or modulate the sounds. And we find 
that the neurons in the speech circuit for humans and in the uh, vocal learning circuits of these birds are over enriched with molecules that control rapidly firing neurons, that control uh, neuroprotection, so you don't kill the neurons just by speaking. That's another specialization you don't find in the surrounding motor circuits. Brought up some pretty interesting things there, right? So you mentioned dancing as maybe almost a side effect. But I mean, certainly when I hear dancing in the context of evolution, I think sexual selection, right? Do we know which came first? Yeah, we don't, but there are a lot of theories out there of what caused vocal learning to evolve. And, you know, that includes spoken language and sexual selection is one of them. I can say that I tend to believe that because all the vocal learning species use their learned sounds for mate attraction or in case of non-humans for territorial defense, well, we can do it for territorial defense as well. Very few of them use it for more abstract, semantic-like communication, like we're doing now, to communicate ideas, to communicate concepts. Instead, they sing to attract mates. The more varied the songs, or the more you steal sounds from the environment incorporated in the songs, like in Mockingbirds, then the uh, more likely you'll attract the opposite sex. Now, you would think semantic abstract communication, referential communication should be the first thing we use it for. What most people don't realize, even a lot of scientists, is that referential communication, like using a sound to mean a bear, using a sound to mean this object over here, that's already happening before even spoken language evolved. Like vervet monkeys have an innate repertoire of sounds that through cultural experience, they will learn to use for different predators or food and so forth. But the first thing vocal learners take their learned sounds to use is not to do that. It's to attract the mate. So that's why I think it came first. In what species that have vocal learning do you see rudimentary elements of culture? You'd certainly expect, you know, groups of dolphins and so on to learn from one another. And Yeah. I'm going to answer the question you're asking, but I think you might be asking a different question, right? Because all vocal learners culturally transmit their repertoires, whether they're using it for semantic information or what we call effective information, like to attract mates. So it's cultural once you have vocal learning. And by being cultural, you get different dialects, you know, like you get different languages and so forth, the further geographically you're separated. Now, I think the question you're asking on top of that is, what species will culturally transmit information about their vocal repertoires that's more informative, like this sound means a predator and so forth? And there are very few species that do that besides humans. Dolphins are thought to be one. Corvid songbirds, which are basically crows and blue jays and so forth, thought to be another. And uh, the parrots, you know, or sort of like African gray parrots. I guess another really interesting question that this raises is, uh, you know, obviously comparative neuroanatomy and comparative genomics are enormously powerful tools to study this. But of course, a complementary approach is classic genetics or human genetics, right? I mean, looking at broken genes, seeing what they do, studying diseases and verbal defects and so on. How complementary have those been and have they pointed kind of in the, the same direction, you know, so this work on FOXP2 and so on? Those two questions is basically the really describing the kind of approach we take in my research broadly. So yes, we use comparative genomics like a natural experiment. The more genomes you sequence out there with species with different traits, the more 
higher probability you will find whatever genetic difference is responsible for those traits. So we sequence genomes and we compare genomes to find if there's convergence in all these different species with and without vocal learning. And if we find convergence, then we take those genes that have these convergent genetic changes. And what we're doing now is to try to take the gene of a species that learns how to imitate sounds and put it into the genome of a species that doesn't, like a mouse, and see if we can induce a change in the brain circuit to get us further along the path to becoming a vocal learner. And if we do, that proves that this gene is responsible for contributing to the trait, and we can study what it does, its function, and so forth. And if it doesn't, we falsified our hypothesis. Another way of doing it is, you know, within one species, like humans, where you don't compare different species, you compare different people. And you find a family out there that has a speech disorder, speech deficit, you know, they can do everything else fine, but they have difficulty learning speech. And then you sequence their genome and you find something that's different from them compared to all the people who can produce speech normally. And this is exactly what happened, you know, more than a decade ago to lead to the discovery of the FOXP2 gene. This is a gene, it's a transcription factor, meaning that it regulates how much a gene product is made from other genes in the brain or that control neuroconnectivity. And when this gene is mutated, it causes people to you know, have a difficulty learning how to produce speech. And uh, we put that same mutation in mouse in collaboration with Simon Fisher in uh, Germany. We found that even though these mice are producing mostly innate sounds, uh, like humans, they had difficulty switching to the more complex innate sounds that females like to hear in their courtship, right? then we're producing simple innate sequences that normally they'll produce anytime or when females aren't around. And this gene also we find in songbirds. And if you block this function in songbirds, like in humans, it also prevents vocal learning from happening normally. So how do you think about translatability? For a long time, I was hoping that the work that we're doing in songbirds, because I started out with songbirds, people would take those discoveries that we find convergent with humans and then try to translate it not only into understanding human knowledge, but to actually, you know, for human health. And I find that, you know, people were not doing that. So the first thing we did is just to find out, could we find convergent parallel changes in human genomes that we see in in the songbirds for vocal learning? And the answer is yes. Not everything is convergent for the genes that function for the specialized trait, but there is a lot of overlap in the genetics. And now what we're trying to do is to see if we can induce a mouse, you know, become more of a vocal learner-like species and uh, study things like stuttering or autistic types of speech deficits, or like I said, these FOXP2 mutations in mouse so that one day those can be translated to helping uh, humans not only understand the disorder better, but to uh, repair it. And how do you think about that in the context of developmental windows, right? Because by the time someone is diagnosed with a speech disorder, you know, usually that ship has sailed. But do you think that can be reopened in some way? Because you can have multiple people out there with a similar speech disorder, all affecting the same genes, 
You don't have to wait for somebody to grow up to become an adult to discover it. So by doing a population analysis as opposed to longitudinal analysis, you can get at discoveries quicker. Although waiting, you know, 13, 14 years for a person to go through puberty and then find out, well, they produce normal speech and so forth is also necessary. That leads to that other part of the question, the critical period years. In all vocal learning species, there is a critical period or what we now call sensitive period where it is easier to learn how to acquire speech early in life than later in life. And then once you pass puberty, it's harder. Like it's harder to pick up a new language. There are a certain set of genes that are turned up or turned down in the brain during those critical periods that close off the ability to learn as much as you can when you're a child. And there are people who are now trying to switch those genes back on so that allows you to learn, let's say in this case, spoken language as well as you did when you were a child, or at least getting closer to that. And I think that's going to one day be possible, but it's going to cause some problems also. And the problem that people don't appreciate is that, you know, why can't I learn as good as when I was younger? Why does it take me so long to learn how to ride a bike as an adult than when you're a child? And the reason is, is that if your brain is in a very plastic stage where you can mold it and learn a lot quickly, you're going to forget quickly. And this is why it's, it's sometimes it's hard to hold on to early childhood memories because you forgot a lot of it because there's only so much capacity in the brain. If you're going to, whatever you learn, sometimes you're going to erase. And yes, you can erase memories. So if you're going to reopen the critical period, you better do it for a brief period of time, learn what you can so you don't erase a lot. This sounds like a uh, premise for a good novel. Yeah. That's right. That's <laughs> So what excites you the most about this field? What, uh, what do you think is most promising? And what do you think are some of the biggest as yet unanswered questions? Yeah, what, what excites me most? Well, you know what? Maybe I went into neuroscience because I was interested in something that was mysterious. The brain is one of the organs that we have the least knowledge about, but the biggest investment in, or one of the biggest investments. I guess the biggest investment is in cancer and broadly, but cancer affects the whole body. And so I'm talking about organ systems. Maybe the heart gets bigger investment. But I'm just fascinated by the fact that we have this kind of behavior or spoken language that allows us to culturally transmit knowledge from one generation to the next. It makes us humans the advanced species that we are. That's what really fascinates me. Jumping many years later from me starting this, you know, in a lab, you know, over 20 years ago, right? You know, what's the problem now? I would say mental health is a problem. It's one of those things that's a real mystery that, you know, it's hard for us humans to figure out how to repair. It's not as simple as stitching a wound clothes and fixing it. And I think Mental health is a bigger problem in humans than in other species, right? Not a lot of people think about mental health in other species, but think about your dogs who are home lonely and so forth, right? That can cause mental health disorders. Now people listen to this, they don't want their dogs to be home lonely. Get another dog to play with, right? I think the problem is, goes to another gene that's actually involved or interacts with genes involved in language, spoken language circuits. In us humans, we have uh, extra duplication of a gene called uh, SRGAP2, spelled out as SLIT robo GTPA. SLIT is a molecule that binds to a receptor called robo. When the two interact, they influence connections in the brain. Those two genes, SLIT and robo, 
are turned up or down in certain brain regions that control speech that we think control the connection to the muscles that control speech. Well, this extra copy of a GTPase, I'm sorry I'm giving you all these molecule terms that the general audience might know, but I'm going to do it anyway. This GTPase, what it does, it modifies this slit-robo interaction to influence connections in the brain. It either dampens down its function or enhances its function. And so we humans have an extra copy of this GTPase molecule. And what that extra copy does is inhibits the function of the normal gene. And by inhibiting the function of the normal gene, we slow down brain development in humans compared to other species. So our brain is developing at a slower pace and staying in a more juvenile state throughout our adulthood lives compared to all other mammalian species or vertebrate species. And I think it's leaving our brains in a more immature state, which then leads to more mental health disorders compared to other species. So some of these mental health disorders, I think, is a side consequence of having a a more advanced civilization and our brains staying in a more juvenile-like state so we can continue to learn throughout life. That's a fascinating hypothesis. So so I guess in in that case, you might expect There could be SR gap knockouts, assuming it's survivable, right, out there walking around. Do you know if anyone's kind of looked into, you know, what those phenotypes look like? Are there people whose brains basically mature much, much faster? That's an interesting question because I I never thought of that, but it's actually a doable question. And it makes me think in humans, there are either one or two extra copies of this SR gap too with people walking around. And it's making me think, well, why have two extra copies in some people? And I'm thinking maybe because one extra copy is not enough. You knock it out, you know, then we become primitive human beings. The additional extra copy is like a safeguard, you know, in case one of them goes awry. I don't know. There's lots of genome sequencing being done of many people out there nowadays. And this question can be answered theoretically. It might be difficult because what a lot of people don't know in the genome world is a lot of the sequencing that's being done of humans out there is being generated with what we call short reads. These are nucleotides base pair sequences that are like 100 to 150 nucleotides long, whereas the genome is 3 billion, right? Whenever you have re- repetitive sequences like the SRGAP2 duplications, with short reads, it's hard to figure out which copy is which. So you need long reads. Long reads are more, are more expensive, like from PacBio, Pacific Biosciences, and, and Oxford Nanopore. And our, in the genome world, produce high-quality data, we're using long reads. So to really figure out this question, to answer your question, we're going to need to sequence the genomes of a lot of people with long reads and then look to see if somebody's missing these extra copies of Versagap2. That's interesting. Yeah, I just had a quick look on Nomad as well. And there are six observed putative loss of function SNVs when they're 38 expected. And there are exactly zero homozygotes out there in kind of all the, you know, genome exome sequencing databases that Nomad (laughs) aggregates. So even the heterozygote knockouts are, are pretty rare, you know. Interesting, interesting. And to think that this gene is an extra copies in humans. So you would think if we lose it, We'll be like all the mammals, we would be okay, but probably not. Looks like maybe it's especially important. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, all this, I guess, kind of leads us almost into our next segment, 
we were talking a lot about dancing and its relevance for vocalization. And you were on the verge of going down the path of being a professional dancer, right? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that's right. Actually, a lot of my family were into the performing arts, and that's the direction I was headed in. And a lot of them sang. I was an okay singer, but not as good as the rest of them. So what could I do? I started dancing in dance clubs and so forth as a teenager when they allowed teenagers to go to dance clubs at the time and started winning dance contests. And I thought, oh, so I can dance. And I auditioned for high school performing arts here in New York City and got in and was on my way to becoming a professional ballet dancer, jazz dancer. But at the end of high school, you know, I was really trying to make that career decision that many teenagers are trying to make. What are you going to do when you graduate high school? And I liked science as well. And uh, my mother always said, do something that has an important impact on society. And that, that stuck in my head. And I, and I was choosing dance or science, dance or science. And I thought as a scientist, I could have a, more, a bigger impact on society than I could as a dancer. And I think as a dancer, you become, if you become a well-known dancer, you can have popular influence or anybody in the performing arts, you know, like actors and so forth. But as a scientist, I can be the ones making the direct impact. So that's why I chose uh, science. But I found out when I got into science, I, I went to Hunter College here in New York City. You know, I got into a laboratory there doing bacterial molecular genetics, you know, studying genes that are involved in synthesizing proteins. And I found out there that being trained as a dancer trained me to become a scientist. They both require a lot of discipline. They both require creativity lots of failure before success. They're not nine to five jobs. And so, so many things. Basically, I, I, I consider being a scientist is also being an artist. It's fascinating. I, I'd never really thought of that before. What do you think doesn't translate as well uh, beyond the obvious? Being an academic scientist is running like a small business. You have a lab, you have people in your lab, you have the staff scientists, you have the students and so forth. You got to raise money. Your publications are your product. The more you publish, the more likely you'll get more money. So let me backtrack a little bit on that, all right? I just, it's not as ruthless as the business world, maybe. But politics, politics and science, they seem to be two different worlds to me, especially at this time, you know, or especially in the past four years before the current era, where politics seem to be anti-science, well, it's interesting, right? You had a postdoc who went on to be a pretty prominent politician in uh, Puerto Rico, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Ricky Rosello, you know, my former postdoc, the governor of Puerto Rico. And I guess he's a scientist, but I guess his politics didn't mix with science that well because, you know, he stepped down. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I very much appreciated his time in the lab. He and I got along very well. And he was a very creative, forward-thinking person. And, but I, I do encourage you know, my students and postdocs and others, not just to go into academia, to go into other walks of life and including in politics. And even though I said they don't mix that well, I do think we need more scientists in politics to help the world. And outside of academia, which is obvious, what paths do you think the, the PhD route are, are especially good training for? I, I think the PhD route is training you for the kind of jobs that require lots of problem solving. You know, let's say city planning, you know, in the business world as well, I think it'll help uh, for problem solving because in science, you're always challenged with a mystery and unknown that you got to figure out and solve. 
So maybe being a detective, you know, maybe being a forensic scientist or something like this. And are, are you glad you did it? I mean, if you had it to do over again, would you be a scientist? Would you be a life scientist? Would you study vocal circuits? <laughs> well, I guess if I had to do over again, would I, well, there are two questions that for me is like, would I come back to the same field? And outside of science, what would I have chosen? And within science, you know, I was always fascinated with the origins of the universe. So I, that was the choice I was trying to choose between the origin of the universe or the brain. So I might choose that or how life began or something like that. Outside of science, you know, I, I was fascinated with history. So maybe origins again, like origins of human civilization, origins of culture. So I might have chosen that or maybe I would have just stuck with dance. Those are the ones that are, that are in my mind. You know, I also considered becoming an astronaut. Well, you just can't say, you know, do that. You have to competitively apply for that. But to me, it's kind of connected to science. But, you know, would it mean I would have been flying planes or something like that? I, I have no idea. But that's something I was considering. So it sounds like pretty much big questions, like fundamental questions, as opposed to kind of applied questions. That, that's right. So fundamental questions. And that's what excites me. I'm as excited as being a scientist as I was being a dancer because, you know, I feel like I'm getting to fundamental principles. I'm doing something that is fun, even though, you know, it's uh, not fun to try to raise money and get rejected from grants or get your papers rejected and so forth. But hey, you know what? In the interim, I'm having fun. So walk us through your kind of key decisions in your career. You know, in college, you decided to go the um, life sciences route. And then you stayed, you stayed in New York for your PhD, right? That's right, yes. And, and, and what made you decide neuroscience over you know, cosmology or something? Yeah, well, let me, let me give you a little bit more context because actually I started out wanting to be a magician when I was a young child. And I was emulating Houdini and as a teenager, going down different parks in New York City with my cousin, Sean, to um, be tied up and escape from chains and ropes and so forth. And we would figure out how to trick people into believing that something magic happened when it really didn't happen. And so um, that kind of actually got me into science. And plus, my father was interested in science because I started getting tired of trying to trick people. I really wanted to know how things really work. And then, you know, jumping years later into my transition into uh, neuroscience, it was really connected to dance. I felt, you know, with dance... The brain controls dancing. It's something I can hold in my hands. It's here on Earth. I don't have to look up to the sky to try to figure it out. And I don't know, something I felt more biologically grounded. It was a simple, holistic way of thinking. And that's why I chose neuroscience. But during my undergraduate years at Hunter, I was still kind of undecided in that trajectory. You know, is it going to be something in the biological sciences, the neuroscience, or is it going to be origin of the universe? So I double majored in biology and in math. Because if I went into physics and astrophysics, I knew I needed a strong mathematical background so I could have the choice by the time I graduated which one I was going to do. That mathematical foundation gave me a decent bioinformatics foundation for biology. And nowadays, you know, uh, biology is so heavy in big data that mathematical background is helpful. And then I was going to add one more thing onto that, which is I also got, you know, was toying around with the idea, should I go into activism, in, into politics. My mother said, do something that has an important impact on society. And I did think about politics and so forth. And even within the sciences, me as a person of, who's an underrepresented minority, 
you know, the African-American descent and mixed up with lots of other things. I thought about, you know, becoming more active in trying to change the culture. And I get asked to do this a lot, but I find that it's, it's actually like having two jobs. And so I figured I'm good, I want to make a change in society by being a role model, by being an example, that as opposed to putting a lot of energy in trying to change policy, which means politics, right? So that's something else I had to consider that I had to toy around with and make a decision. Including now, as now people listen to this, I asked to be a director of this or, or X, Y, and Z because now I've made a name for myself in science. You know, can I change the culture of science? And maybe I could or help change it. You know, you can't do it alone. But I'm really still, even at this time in my career, I've, I want to make those discoveries about how the world works, how the brain works. What are your thoughts on how people should think about changes that need to happen in in the culture of science and so on, right? Are there things out there that you think are especially productive? Are there things you think are counterproductive? How do you think about it? Yeah, I think what's counterproductive is for the scientific community at a whole and individual institutions or departments to expect that the folks who are, let's say, I, I don't want to call it victims, but, you know, who are being negatively affected by discrimination and so forth, are the ones who should be given the keys to try to find the solution. You know, I think the solution to the what I call society's racial disease is everybody needs to be, get involved. Whether or not the people who are perpetrators of racism or who, who are the benefits of discrimination and so forth, we all need to be part of the solution for it to work. The other is that the, the scientific community needs to do more scientific research on not just social research, right, where you're looking at behavior only, but what is it in our human behavior that leads to tribalism in the form of racism? Why does that happen? And is there something genetic about that? Or is there some type of nature versus nurture influence of your social upbringing that leads some people to become white supremacists and others to become activists to, against those white supremacists? I think there needs to be more hard, hard science that goes into this to find solutions. What, what do you think are the, the kind of most important questions to answer along those lines? I think some of the most important ones is where is the overlap or the interaction between tribalism, economics, and health? Okay, so I'll say it again. Tribalism, economics, and health. Because I think those three together are the problems that are contributing to this racial disease where when the economics and the health, you know, become a problem, right, then the tribalism breaks out. And so where is that tipping point? Then we can find ways to prevent that from happening. What are the ways that you kind of approach this problem that you think differ from maybe how others may? What I think I do that's differing from many others, I won't say many others, but enough others is I, I think I learned how to have more resilience than I realized. It's a level of resilience that I don't, I don't think should be necessary, but it, it was necessary. And that resilience is not only resilience to folks who say or do things that would, would be purposely discriminatory. Even overtly, they knew that they really thought I had an unfair advantage with affirmative action programs, for example or that I am less than, that because of the color of my skin, my ethnicity, that I'm not as smart. I've met people who think that way. 
in the sciences, right? So you got to have resilience to that, or you got to have resilience to, you know, implicit bias where, you know, someone is saying or doing something, but they don't realize what they're saying or doing is discriminatory and they have all good intentions. And I say that because I've had enough people in my office, people of color who come to my office crying about something, uh, feeling lessened. And I say resilience also to the imposter syndrome. Do I belong here? Do I belong at Rockefeller? I've had that question both as a student and interviewing as a faculty member. You've got to have resilience to your own imposter syndrome as well. Well, and that's interesting because at least most recently, right, when you returned to Rockefeller, you were already very, very well established at Duke, right? And even at that time, was that still kind of a, uh, something you were dealing with? Yes, it, it was something that I was dealing with. And it, and it even surprised me when I realized it. And it wasn't me, me who helped me realize it. It was a few other famous scientists basically saying that, Eric, you're lowering yourself too much. And, you know, I was surprised because I, I, I rather underestimate what I am than overestimate. But, you know, the, you know some people are saying, you know, you know, too much of an underestimation. And I realized it was because of my minority status that I was doing that to myself. And so how, how would you encourage earlier career scientists of color? Yeah, I, I found a way to evaluate myself because, like I said, you don't want to overestimate either. Um, if you get too confident, you might do something stupid in the field and send a grant proposal in that's really horrible and then get a, repu- a reputation that you're sending in horrible grant proposals for your work. I try to balance my evaluation with you know, my own self-evaluation and what others think. In the beginning phase, it's going to be hard because you're just starting. So I would say to the younger scientists, and that includes the students, you know, go get some opinions of different faculty members. Don't depend on one, because especially a person of color, you might find one or two that are going to undervalue you anyway. And if they start saying to you that it's okay that you're not going to achieve something as somebody else who's white, be careful because they might undervalue you. You know, that's why I say get multiple opinions. Don't accept everything they say, but listen, understand everything they're saying and try to improve what you're doing based upon that knowledge. Later in life, as you start to publish papers and so forth, the way I do a self-evaluation is at the end of every year, see what the citation rate you know, of my papers are, what impact my papers are having on the scientific field. And now I have out of the 100, I don't know, 60 or so papers we've published uh, over my career, you know, even since I'm an undergraduate student, something like 20, 25 of them, maybe more than that, are the top one cited, 1% cited papers in their field, you know, according to uh, the metrics, you know, and citation metrics and so forth. So that can't be because of the color of my skin, you know, and so forth. So I use that as a metric to answer that question. That's fascinating. Yeah, we, we actually, on our blog, have compiled, uh, to my knowledge, the only database of H-index distributions at different institutions for biological scientists who involve computational biology in their work. And so you can go and see for, you know, I'm an assistant professor, associate, full professor at this kind of institution, like, you know, what the H-index distribution looks like. Wow, that's that, that's good to know. I would check it out. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So what do you think has changed about how science is done today from uh, when you were, you know, just entering the field? 
I was born in 1965, right? And so I entered science when I was 18 years old, right? So we're talking the early 80s. So when I started out in the early 80s, what I found was, you know, science was a lone ranger approach, especially when I got to graduate school. I was taught you have to figure out everything yourself and you have to be first or last author on a paper. You know, I mean, this kind of thing is the same. It is now, but it's less so than it was before. And I, I found that there was a Western European model of thinking because I, I grew up in an African-American family, you know, with some Native American cultural mix there, of course, with European culture around us, right? I was thinking of like a Martin Luther King approach, you know, bring everybody together, you know, be very collaborative. And the advice that I was getting is I'm doing too much collaboration, you know, that I'm not distinguishing myself enough and so forth, you know, even from when I was getting tenure and so forth. And some other people pulled me aside and whispered, don't pay attention. You're doing just fine. And I didn't actually, I took this more collaborative approach to science and now I'm finding that I'm good at it and I'm leading large international consortium for genomics or neuroscience and so forth. And I'm getting credit for it. You know, we just produce more papers and we switch around authors on different papers and so forth. And they're coming out as some of the most highly cited papers in the field. And also for me, what really counts is not your so much as your credit, but the discoveries that are made. And so that was my Malcolm X training, right? Which is by any means necessary. So if you need to collaborate, do it. If you need to take the long ranger Western European approach, do it. What is the necessary approach to make the, the scientific discoveries? And what I'm finding is that as science diversifies more and as big data science in the biological science, at least, you know, grows where collaboration is necessary, this lone ranger approach is becoming less and less. And there seem to be a lot of people who are un- unhappy with that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you see a lot of complaints about uh, money that goes to the consor- consortia, even though their data are indispensable, right? At the CRO, we rely on GTEx, we rely on TCGA, you know, we rely on these big encode and so on, right? These big consortia data all the time, every single day. Yeah. I, I, yes, I've heard people who aren't into the consortia projects. They, they just want to have six people in their lab and that's it complain about our consortium projects, about how competitive they are. You know, I mean... They're useful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do you think is done poorly right now in science? Uh, what, what, what do you think most needs to be improved? I think th- uh, two things, right? One of the biggest things we poorly do in science is communicate to the public what we're doing. I think the public is undereducated in the sciences and and in sometimes miseducated and purposely so for political reasons. This is something that is changing. When I jump back to the 80s uh, and 90s, we kind of were taught, don't talk to the media that much. Don't do a podcast, right? Uh, because you're selling yourself or you could say something wrong. There are somebody misinterpreted because they're not a scientist. And therefore, you know, you get a bad reputation in the scientific community. Or you're trying to sell, you know, you're trying to make a big name for yourself like Carl Sagan. But I think that attitude does us a disservice. I think when it comes to the public good and, and the scientific community, throw out the humility out the door. Educate the world as to what we're doing and learn from them as well. So that's one. And the other is, I think we don't have a big enough financial investment in the sciences. There is a lot of money going into 
you know, I guess I guess the one that that gets criticized all the time is the military, right? But I think the business world, political world, could invest more money into science education, even if those students don't become scientists. I think it's going to be better for whatever they go into, and for the scientists themselves. Of course, that's self-serving since I'm a scientist. But I think we can we can do a lot more for the climate, turning around what's going on climate change for our own health and so forth, and just for basic understanding of the world if we invested more. Totally agree. And to your first point, the reason I went into the life sciences in the end was actually reading some pop science books that Richard Dawkins had written. And then when I went to grad school and was classmates with a number of people in, in his department and so on, I learned that you know within the department, people would complain about him a lot. And really, it sounded more or less like they were, you know, jealous that that this guy gets all this attention, but, you know, they're publishing better and, and, and all this stuff. And my thought all along was, well, but yeah, okay, maybe, maybe his, his, his publications aren't as impactful internally, but, but big picture, he's probably having a lot more impact because he's drawing a lot of people into the field who otherwise may not have gone. Right, exactly. So, so we, need, we need people like him. Cool. Do you have any, any final words for our, our audience? Words of encouragement? You know, picking backing off this last topic, I feel that what we need scientists need to learn how to do, and I need to, including myself, even more, is to translate. Not only to translate, okay, you know, from bench to bedside type of translation of discoveries, but translate knowledge from the the scientific establishment to the general public. And we don't have enough good translators. And so it's good to have you as a translator, but we scientists, we need to learn how to make that vocabulary and grammar and so forth understandable. Totally agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a lot of fun. You're welcome. And uh, very good questions. And I enjoyed this uh, podcast. Thanks, Eric.